with us this morning. We're honored to have you. I'm Denny Kreisick, one of the pastors here, and traditionally we are in a particular book of the Bible throughout the year. We're in Acts this morning. We're going to be in Acts 15 in a moment, and we, over probably a number of years that we've been here, have gone through at least a dozen or two different books of the Bible, and that's what we continue to do here. I've chosen for the last year or so to be on the floor. I, if you can't see for whatever reason, please make sure you let us know. We'll try to accommodate in some way. But for whatever reason, I feel more comfortable here. And so uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're really honored to have you. Trust someone has already made you feel welcome and given you a lot of information about our church. Over the next couple of weeks, you'll see some things out there in the lobby. want to make sure you uh, get on your way out. Uh, not this morning. Next Sunday morning, the elders on Wednesday night updated our bylaws. Been out of date for a long period of time. And so they'll be there next Sunday morning, as well as our annual report. On December the 7th, we have a congregational celebration. Uh, it's the old traditional congregational meeting, but we do it on Sunday morning. And you're going to be able to hear from all the senior staff about what God has done and how excited we are to minister here at Community Alliance Church. And I trust you'll join us that day as we celebrate. We're going to set aside Acts uh, in just a couple of weeks and do some things different over the next uh, few together and pick it back up at the beginning of the year. This morning, a fascinating section of Scripture about church conflict. How many of you like conflict? I mean, you run to it or run from it. Some enjoy it. I mean, they always seem ready to pick a fight. They want to make sure that their point is always heard. And, of course, they're always what? Right. Isn't it fascinating how so many people can be always right? But they want to make sure that everyone hears their opinion. They want to make sure that everybody knows what they feel. You know as well as I do, you don't always have to be what? Right? And not necessarily do you always have to be heard. But some people like to hear the sound of their own voice. Some people like to bring up discussion or argument. They love those moments when they can really do iron sharpens iron. And they'll use that verse in Proverbs to talk about the necessity of really working out issues. And in some context, it's really important. Ruth Graham said, if you don't have a conflict in marriage, one of you is unnecessary. Right? And she's married to one of the most godly men on the planet, Billy Graham. So you have it within the context of churches. You have it in marriage. You have it in families. How many of you have survived 40 years as a family without ever having your children disagree with any decision you've ever made? There's always conflict of some kind or the other. But when it's in a church, it's a little more tense. Some of us get a little gun-shy. We've lived through them. Some of you are here this morning at Community Alliance Church because of a conflict in another church. I know that. You know that. Things didn't go well from your vantage point. It wasn't handled well. It split the church or divided people up, and it was a pretty sensitive issue, and it really hurt a lot of folks. It hurt you. It hurt your family. And all of a sudden, after 20 or 30 years of going to that particular church, maybe even growing up that way or being second or third generation, you have to find another church. Because it was so tense and so tough and so difficult, you just felt like you couldn't stay there. And so you're here this morning and maybe have been here for a while because of that. And so when someone talks about conflict in a church or things are getting tense or things are getting tired or we've got to have a meeting and go over issues, you get a little gun shy. Because you know what it does and you know what it has done to your church or maybe your family or, or your past. Now, I've been really blessed. I've been doing a 
been in ministry for over 37 years. I've had four of the greatest churches anyone could ever imagine. I've loved every experience I've ever been in. Had some tough conflict. Had some tough congregational meetings. Had at least probably one person disappointed in me in some way for every single week of the last 37 years. So that's a little odd. But I love what I do. And I love being a part of the family of God. I love being a part of church. And I wouldn't do anything else in the world. Some have seen me try to do everything or other things, and they say, you really can't do anything else. You might as well stay with what you're doing. The church conflict is tough. It's tense. We're all different, and sometimes those differences appear. And in your sermon notes this morning, you have them in your Bible or in your bulletin. I want you to take them out. All those differences sometimes can cause us to compete or criticize or compare and control. Whether it's in a family or a business or in church. You bring all those differences together and we have a tendency to compete against one another. Our church is better than yours. Our style of music is better than yours. We're worshiping God more different than you are. And, and that's what really connects with God. I've seen that in worship ministries all of my ministry life. And people will compare about what style's better and what one more connects with God. We'll criticize no matter what it is. If we don't like it, if it doesn't fit our genre, if we don't like what's going on, we, we try to compare at other churches or other pastors. In this day of media, overwhelming media, uh, I'm compared with other pastors all the time. And they're all better than me in the media and on television. So it's one of those things where we're always doing that. We, it can create envy, jealousy, prejudice, or pride when you take all those differences together and put them together. And, and when you get a group of people together from various backgrounds and any of those issues, any of the things that I said in those ones that are in your sermon notes are lying beneath the surface and they surface, things get really tense and feelings get hurt. Two of the most familiar passages of Scripture we read on a regular basis is one out of 1 Corinthians 11. We read it at communion time. It's the one that I quote more often than not when I talk about what Jesus did in the upper room with his disciples. Paul is rehearsing what he has heard passed down through these last number of years. And he's sharing with a group of people what he knows went on in the upper room. It's the passage of scripture that I quote about to, when I'm about to share communion. We're going to do it on November 30th. The other probably most familiar section of scripture that you've ever heard is 1 Corinthians 13. We know it as what? The love chapter. In almost every wedding, I read that section of Scripture, or at least the middle verses from 4 to 8. Both of those chapters were written to a church in conflict. Church going through some really deep waters. First and second Corinthians was written to a church that's going through really difficult times. And so there's a lot of precedent for that. Scripture all over the place gives us some insights as to how to deal with it. Matthew 18 is one of the most common brother sins against you, you need to go to him. You need to, if he doesn't agree, take two or three witnesses with you and, and then continue in that journey until you finally have to tell, in our context, the leadership of the church. We don't tell the whole church in most respects, but tell the leadership and, and walk through that process because they are continuing to sin and not repent. What I find fascinating down through the ages, that section of Scripture, when two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. We use that for the lack of a lot of people are prayer meeting. For two or three are gathered together, even if there's only a couple of us, Jesus is here. He's there when there's one. Where two or three are gathered together, I'm there in the middle of them, was written in the context of church conflict. 
It wasn't written to excuse how many people come to a meeting of some kind. It was written to a church in conflict, and he said, you've got to take two or three people with you. If you're going to deal with that issue, you can't go alone. You need to have somebody with you. But I'm telling you right now, if you do that, I'm right there in the middle of it. I don't want you to feel you're alone. Conflict is inevitable. In a lot of cases, in our families, in our churches, in our marriages, even in the church. And when it does, people act in a variety of ways. You see some of them in your sermon notes this morning. A lot of people stand their ground. Some draw lines in the sand. We guard our rights. Some fight. Some deny it ever exists. Some run away. Some people get really nasty. Some people get really hurt. And some get destroyed. And certainly, as I said a moment ago, so do some churches. Today, we're going to explore Acts 15 and use that as a, as a foundation for what we want to look at in this particular context. Churches that are dealing with a variety of issues that causes people to go in different direction. I've known, and maybe you have as well, churches who have split over the color of the carpet. I, I, seriously, you're going to love this one. I read about a church group of people whose ladies unit split over what to serve at a fellowship meal. You get that? A fellowship meal. What's that to do? Bring people together. Have unity and harmony and share time together. They had a church split over what to serve at a fellowship meal. This church could have as well. It's brand new. It just taken off. When you read Acts 15, you're only about 12 or 13 years from Pentecost, from God pouring out a spirit on a church and miraculous thing taking place. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have come to faith in Christ from all walks of life. God created us that way as unique individuals, human beings who have different opinions, convictions, desires, perspectives, and priorities. A lot of these differences are not inherently right or wrong. They're simply a result of God-given diversity and personal preferences. When handled properly, disagreements can produce creative conversations Helpful change, but when handled incorrectly, they can wound and even destroy. Acts 15, you're there now? I'm going to walk through it, beginning at verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but a pretty big piece of it. So hope you're in the Word. I think it's going to be on the screen, your Bible or iPad or YouTube, whatever you're looking. Not YouTube. Don't look at YouTube. <laughs> you version. Some of you are going looking. I'm looking up another preacher, man. I'm going to watch him. Put the earplugs in. You mouth it. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told, the Gentile, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After a lot of discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles may hear from my lips a message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate against us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither 
we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas tell about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon described to us how God first intervened, chose a people for, the name, for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this. It was written as, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Now it's in my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it more difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them from, to abstain from food polluted to idols or by idols, from sexual immorality and from meat strangled and from blood. The law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and it read today in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders in the whole church decided to choose some other men or some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders from among the believers. Now jump down to verse 36. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit those believers in all the towns that we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And he continued and had not continued with them in the work. They had a sharp dispute, and they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went to Syria, Sicilia, Strengthening the churches. Two statements in there between the church and between Paul and Barnabas, sharp dispute, I think are pretty understated words. I think that really things get tough. I'm not sure if you've ever had that person in your life that you know is extremely strong, very confident, overwhelmingly opinionated, and very easily could intimidate you going up against them. But to me, that's what it would be like going up against the Apostle Paul. There's no way on a planet I'd want to take him on theologically or in any other way. But Barnabas decides to do that over John Mark, and they decide to deal with this issue on a broader basis in the first half of this chapter, and it said a sharp dispute arose among them. Chapter 15, as I said a moment ago, is about 12 years from Pentecost. And you know and I know things sometimes change with time, and at time, so do relationships. Do you ever notice this when someone new comes into your organization or your family, whatever that may be, the longer you're with them, the more you appreciate them, or the longer you're with them, the more you're noticing things that kind of rub everybody else the wrong way. And many times that's proved out over time. The longer you're with some people in your organization and, and, and in many cases your family, although I know you are saying I can't choose my family but the longer you're with some, the, the more you constantly, continually appreciate them. You know that at work. That new person comes in and you wonder how it's going to be and what it's going to be like and how you're going to deal with them and how they're going to fit into the organization. And, and all of a sudden you find out there's some amazing things about them and you find it getting more and more enjoyable through time. But you've also seen the opposite. Look good on paper, did great in the first interview, and you thought things would go well and then the longer you're around them, all these things that were hidden for a particular period of time, no reason of their own necessarily, begin to surface. And you find that it's just not as enjoyable as it was. It happens even in churches. It happens in ministry staffs, down through the ages. 
Churches and movements go through difficult times. In this particular context, people get excited and got excited when the church began to grow and hundreds were coming into the kingdom. But as time went by and things began to change as a result of that growth, some weren't as excited as they were before. Now, some got a lot freer in their embracing of people from different backgrounds. Some got more restrictive. And in this case, in Acts, they got more restrictive. They said things like, you know, it's okay for people to come to Christ, but they're so different than us. I mean, Peter was okay that you share the gospel with Cornelius, but did you have to go to his house? What I find fascinating about this and many other contexts is that Jesus faced similar criticism. All through his ministry life in those three years, the group that criticized him the most were religious people who thought everything should be just a certain way. And only a certain few should come into the kingdom of God and only certain ones had rights and access to God. They never seemed to notice the great things that God was doing. They certainly never seemed to notice the amazing things Jesus was doing. What they noticed was when someone was breaking a rule. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching grace and forgiveness Believe on Christ for salvation. In Christ, all the barriers are broken down, but some of the church didn't like that. Only believe? Grace for everyone, they would say? That's okay with us. We were holy to begin with, but some of these people are real sinners. We'd never say that out loud, but it's exactly how they seem to operate. These kinds of people followed Paul and Barnabas everywhere they went. Some scholars believe the book of Galatians, I'm not sure if you've ever read it, but if you have an opportunity at some point in the back of your mind, take the book of Galatians and lay it over the context of here of Acts 15, where Paul went to them and said, what on earth happened? He started out so excited about Jesus and salvation and grace. Someone got to you because all of a sudden you're reverting back to the old ways of trying to earn your salvation and not fully understanding grace. <coughs> Here, these two groups come to the surface. And as I said a moment ago, a sharp dispute arose among them. In this context here, we're going to see a really good model of how the issue is dealt with. Now, some down through the ages, and I've heard it talked about in any context, will use Acts 15 as a great model for how congregational meetings ought to take place. And, And I get that. But to be really honest with you, I don't think Acts 15 is a model for congregational meetings. What you see here in this context is the issue is certainly brought up. The opinions are shared, but you'll notice in verse 19, the leaders lead. James hears all that's necessary, hears all the sides, and then he stands up and said, I get it, I understand it, I hear everything. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going. These folks here are in a position where they're going to have to decide. In your sermon notes, what is our mission and what is our message? What is our mission and what is our message? Now, the basic dilemma here is this. Is faith in Christ enough to be accepted by God or not? Is salvation a free gift of God's amazing grace, or do I have to earn it? Essentially, that's what this is all about, and that's a huge issue. The party of the Pharisees in verse 5 would agree with Paul. Grace is wonderful, truly believe, but please don't be naive, they would say. There's more to it than that. To be really accepted by God, you got to go through our system. In their case, it was get circumcised and obey the law of Moses. One of the most familiar sections of Scripture for us in the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus during those three years is when he turned the tables of the temple upside down. If you know anything about the ministry of Jesus during those three years, that's one that stands out. 
where Jesus walked into the temple on his way in and literally threw out the money changers. One of the most emotional moments in the life of Jesus. I mean, you can tell he was angry and upset and turned all the tables over. For years, I've heard it in a context that says that's why we don't sell things in the lobby. That's why you're not allowed to sell pizzas in church. Jesus would be mad. And so you're not allowed to sell those things at the end of the service or make those things known that we do any of that on Sunday because Jesus would be mad and he would come in and turn the table upside down. That's not what this section of Scripture is all about at all. What made Jesus angry is when they were coming into the temple to bring their sacrifices, the Pharisees and the party of the Pharisees would stand outside where everyone had access, and the only way they could get into the inner part of the temple, not to the inner of inners, but the only place they could get to the inner part of the temple was to go past their booths. And every single one of them would say, your sacrifice doesn't count. Your sacrifice is not acceptable. God doesn't want that. You have to buy ours. And they made it impossible for people to come into the kingdom of God without going through their routine or without going through their booths or buying their wares. And Jesus said, you're shutting the door in the face of people who are desperately looking for God because you're making them go through your limits, your parameters, your rules before they can get in. And Jesus constantly in his three years of ministry and Paul over and over again talked about salvation by grace and by grace alone. They would say to really be accepted by God, you got to go through our system now. We would never say that today, but we have all kinds of measuring rods that you may have heard down through the years of people who determine someone's spirituality by the do's and don'ts of spiritual performance. Things like real Christians don't do that. And when I was growing up, it was cards, dances, and movies. <laughs> Playing cards, dances, and movies. And, and I'm sure some of you are going, what? <laughs> But when I was growing up, those were the measuring rods that some would, to, would, would use, fine clothes or certain clothes or jewelry. For others, it was church attendance and whether or not you went to Wednesday night prayer meeting. When I was growing up, they said things like this. If you go to church on Sunday morning, you love God. If you go on Sunday night, you love the pastor. If you go on Wednesday night, you love the Lord. And so I had to decide if I didn't love the Lord or didn't go on Wednesday night, did that measure my spirituality? We don't do things like that today, but we hear all kinds of phrases about what we should or shouldn't do. Verse 8, God knows the heart. He's the one we answer to. And based on our faith, not our performance, he gives us a spirit. But these Pharisees believe there ought to be outward visible signs of our spirituality. Unfortunately for them, in your notes, the how became a ladder to be climbed to earn salvation and enjoy God's approval. It's like a parent laying down do's and don'ts for a child's best welfare or for understanding discipline, which is absolutely necessary, but not so the child could earn love and approval. It's for them to understand discipline, not to gain love. Now, maybe you grew up in that environment where there was a list of do's and don'ts that you had as a child, and you would have things in your head and maybe say them outside or out loud, if I don't do this, Dad, Mom won't love me anymore. And sometimes we carry that over into our relationship with God. You can't do anything to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make God love you less. God loves you so much so, even while we were still sinning, he sent his son to die on a cross to offer salvation so by the free gift and embracing of that, we could find life forever. That's an amazing gift. Well, for so many people, there were barriers or hoops they had to go through to earn salvation and then wonder. I said this last Sunday night in membership class. 
when I ask the question of so many people, do you know when you die you're going to go to heaven? And many of them will answer, I hope so. And I say, why would you want to hope about your eternal salvation? Why don't you want to know? Don't you want to know for sure about that one thing? You can be uncertain about whether the economy is going to grow or whether gas is going to go down below $3 a gallon. You can be uncertain or certain about a lot of other things in life. But the one thing you want to be sure about is your eternal salvation. You want to know for sure that when you die and leave this world, you'll see God face to face. And Jesus said, and John says, I've written all of this so that you can know you have eternal life. And know for sure that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's because you've opened your life up to Jesus. You've understood and recognized what he did for you on the cross. And you invited him into your life. You knew you were a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And you let him come in and you turned your life over to him. Were you perfect after that? Of course not. But you knew at that moment in time, whenever that may have been, in my case, March of 1965, I knelt by my bed and I said, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm absolutely certain of that. And I know you're the one and only Savior and I give my life to you and I invite you in. And I live my life for you from this point out. You want to be certain about that. But unfortunately, with a list of do's and don'ts and all the things that go along with that, no one is ever really certain because you're not sure if you did enough of the do's and didn't do enough of the don'ts. When Jesus said, here it is, I offer it to you. Salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. For by grace are you saved in Ephesians in your sermon notes. Not of yourselves as a gift from God, not of works, lest you boast that I gained it on my own. But many have added outward signs of determining someone's spirituality. Now, I've got a couple of questions in your notes. Are we to be spiritual? Absolutely. Are we to live holy lives as a follower of Christ? Absolutely. In an evil society, we are to be noticeably different. Paul said, I want you to live a life worthy of your calling. You're a child of God. Live consistently with who you are. 2 Corinthians, come out and be separate. Don't touch unclean things because holiness matters to God. Ephesians 5, be careful how you walk. But unfortunately, the pendulum in Paul's day and our day can swing too far. And before you know know it, holiness born of the Spirit became self-righteousness born of pride. And before you know it, it becomes so separated and isolated from the very people we need to reach. And we set up our own standards of what makes those coming in accepted. Instead of becoming a river as God's grace and mercy, letting it flow out of us to other people, we become a reservoir and keep it to ourselves and set our own standards for who can receive it called legalism and it's the one thing that jesus said more than anything else in the new testament to be aware of confronted it in matthew 23 and a hundred other places where people were measuring spirituality by what they saw on the outside but jesus knew on the inside they were filthy rags and dirty as could be there's a guy who preaches and there's that classic statement that had been said for years if you read the bible it will keep you from sin no that's not true If you obey the Bible, it will keep you from sin. I know tons of people. I've known pastors who stood in pulpits, who read the Bible, who knew it backwards and forwards, and behind the closed doors and in secret lived lives of sin. Verse 8, God sees the heart. God has always dealt with the heart, and he knew from heart behavior, purity and life and behavior would flow. A heart that is hot for Jesus will live distinctively different. A heart that is hot for Jesus, that knows and understands God's amazing grace, will live different. Not so that I can earn salvation. It's because of his amazing grace, and I'm going to live it out. 
God shows no distinction, as Paul and Peter pointed out, between people based on externers, externals. He was no respecter of person. He doesn't favor the rich more than the poor, the tall more than the short, the intelligent over the challenge, the pretty over the plain, the athletes over the non-athletes, doesn't make distinctions based on our ethnic background, whether Methodists or Presbyterians or Pentecostals or Baptists, or he doesn't like men more than women or adults more than kids. God doesn't show favoritism and neither can his church. Every church is going to have to wrestle with a number of questions. I have two of them written in your bulletin. What is our mission and what is our message? We as a church down through the years have said, why are we here? Why are we at the corner of Duffy and Mercer? So that someone who can't stop has big rocks at the end of the road so they can hit them and run into our building? Why are we at the corner of Mercy and Duff, or Duffy and Mercer? So the people who are looking for life and truth and grace can find it in us because we believe that we have the answer to life. We believe that we have the eternal salvation that so many are desperately looking for, going in a hundred different directions, shooting themselves up, taking all kinds of things, drinking things to try to find peace and happiness. And we believe that we have the answer to life, but we can't keep it confined within the doors of our building. We've got to take it to the streets wherever we go because you represent hundreds and hundreds of people who know and love Jesus, who hear the truth every single Sunday, who cannot walk out of these doors saying, I don't, even, I don't know how it come to Christ. I don't know how you find faith. I don't know how you find Jesus. You're absolutely certain of that because you hear it all the time. And you have the opportunity to walk out of these doors from this place all over this community and make a difference in the lives of people. We can't get hung up over things that really don't matter or someone's opinion over the color of the carpet or the size of the sanctuary, the looks of so many things. What is our message? Jesus Christ is the answer to life. And what is our mission? Take this life-changing gospel of Jesus everywhere we go. John Stumbo, our new president, has narrowed down all the theology to the CMA into this statement. We are a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 family. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is the center of all that we do. And we are an Acts 1-8 family who are tied together from all backgrounds and all walks of life, who have the opportunity to start right where we are in our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. CNMA has wonderfully been known for what we do at the end of the earth out of Matthew 28. But we sometimes, if we're not careful, miss what we need to do in our own communities. That's why Acts 1-8 is such a powerful section of Scripture when Jesus said, begin right where you are. Make a difference when you walk out this door. You have the answer to life. You have the answer to people's salvation. You have the answer to people's eternity. And we have the opportunity to give it. And James was pretty clear, and so was Paul. We're not going to get hung up on externals. We're not going to get hung up on things that don't matter. There's some clear guidelines that he gave that are easy to understand, but he said we're not going to get hung up on, a turn, on externals. In your bulletin, every single week, right in the front, is our statement. It says we want to be people transformed by faith in Christ, radically different from what we were before, who are growing in wisdom continually, day after day after day, deepening our walk with God every Sunday, every gathering, continuing to grow very intentional in relationships and service. Our mission is to reach the unredeemed people of this world the best we know how. And those unredeemed come in various shapes and sizes. In every group, there's a Cornelius who God's spirit has begun to work on. 
And if we ignore them because they're different from us, we'll miss the opportunity, and they may miss eternity because of that. Has our mission brought conflict? Absolutely. Not that naive, worship style, how we govern, how we make decisions, what decisions we make. Certainly not everyone is agreed with, but our message that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world has been preached till the end of time. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. Now I'm in a quandary. I got 10 commandments of conflict to give you. How many vote that I give them to you next Sunday? How many want to hear them today? How many say next Sunday? Get out. You want to hear them today? Pack your lunch. Here we go. I love this because next Sunday's sermon is already written and I can't wait for it because it's really good. Guidelines for dealing with conflict. Got to see it in the right way. Got to understand that it's a way to work things out, to use wisdom, to act maturely for heaven's sake. Opportunity to grow. You have to look up these scriptures because James very clearly said, look, you got to make sure your motives are pure. When you're dealing with conflict in your marriage, your family, your business, your organization, or the church, you got to honestly look inside and make sure your motives are pure. That it's not out just to prove how smart you are, that you know the right way, or any of those things, but you got to make sure your motives are pure and glorify God in everything you do, number three. The last thing we want to look like is how the world operates when they get uptight about issues. I don't want to look like Congress. I don't want to look like the government. I don't want to look like a county commissioner's meeting in Butler County. Well, I'll just keep going on that one. I want to look like godly individuals who understand differences in diversity, but more than anything else, want to make sure they glorify God. Be careful of judging. Number four, don't keep score. Don't keep score. It's probably one of the most difficult ones for all of us. We want to remember, and we have good memories. We're all like elephants. We remember when we were betrayed. We remember when we were hurt. We remember what you said. We remember what you were wearing when you said it. We remember what day of the week and how you said it and the tone that you had. Don't keep score. Work through it biblically. A couple of sections for that. Desire unity, not uniformity, but unity. We're not all going to agree. We're not all going to look alike. We're not all going to act alike. Listen to all sides. I love the fact that James says, listen well and then speak. Basically, he says, you got two ears and one mouth. Use it accordingly. Use it proportionately. Listen well before you respond. Your kids say that to you all the time, right? You don't listen to me. And, 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 and many times they're saying you don't listen to me because we didn't do what they wanted. And, and you want to say, yeah, I listened to you all 17 times you said it. I just didn't do what you want, so you're thinking I don't listen to you. But there's the other side of that. There's sometimes, honestly, as parents, we don't listen well. We've already made up our mind, and we don't listen to them. We don't listen to the heart. We men are classic at that, right? I mean, we are classic non-listeners. We hear just enough to get by. We hear just enough information to try to get to the bottom line, right? I mean, we are classic non-listeners. I've got a whole sermon on that one through the years of life and experience, but we're so good at not picking up all the pieces. And, and our wives and mine colluded will say, I, I told you that. You did? You were standing right there. You did. I was? My daughter, Erin, especially, not you, Rach, because you're perfect, but my other daughter, 
she would say things like, did you have that conversation in your head? In most cases, I did. I have a lot of conversations in my head. You've heard me say before, I could ride in the HOV lane by myself with all the voices I hear in my head. But man, we've got to listen well. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. Stop long enough to hear and understand. I'm not sure what your blanks are in yours, so let me give you the rest. Be honest and open to another view. Your, yours isn't always the right one. I know it's hard for some of you to believe or some of us to believe. And then number 10, forgive as you've been forgiven. I saw a story this week on television. I shared you last week, my, life, my wife and I love being in Amish country for a ton of different reasons. But they had a story of the young girls that were killed in the schoolyard in a schoolhouse a number of years ago in an Amish schoolhouse. And the story went on to say a little piece that I didn't know, and that is that very night or the very next day, a lot of those families went to the home of the one who did the killing and said, we forgive you. And then dozens of them went to that man's funeral. How do you do that? They understand grace. They understand how to forgive as we've been forgiven. They understood what they had received from God. And they understood that they weren't to be a reservoir to hold it to themselves, but wanted to give it. And when I saw the pictures of that, because I'd never seen that before, and then saw the description and the ones who actually went to the home and went to the graveside, I thought, what an amazing demonstration of Ephesians 4.32. Forgive. I only gave you 10 commandments. Scripture gives a lot more. But I think if we obeyed them and followed them, we'd have a lot less churches splitting and a lot more unity and harmony and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more coming into the kingdom of God because they understood how welcome they are and trying to walk through someone's hoop to get in. May that be said of us, that people recognize this is a place you're going to find grace. This is a place you're going to find love. This is a place that you're going to find acceptance. We different? Hey, you bet. But that we understand that God's love is for the world, and we want to share it. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, your incredible love. We look forward to what you'll continue to teach us in our journey as we walk together as a family of God through all the differences and all the things that you want to teach us. We give you glory and praise for who we are and what we become. I love this church and I love these people and the opportunity we have to see more and more come into the kingdom. I think next year could be one of the most phenomenal years in our history. More and more people who I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt will come into the kingdom of God because of our ministries and our mission and our message. And so God, help us in the name of Jesus to be able to do that well with all the diversity all of our differences of opinion to do it in a way that brings you glory and honor and brings people into the kingdom. I can't wait to stand around your throne and see all the people that are there because of the ministries and people of CAC who have touched and changed their lives and shared Jesus everywhere they went. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Have a great day. Next week we're going to continue in Acts one more week and then take a break. I want you to come next Sunday morning with a pencil or a pen because you're going to take a quiz. See you then. I can pray for you in any way. I know we've got some people that 
want to be anointed and prayed over, Bob does, others of you here, please come this way.